Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. If you're just joining us, you have come at a great time. It is big, bad, bold October, and we have a big, bad, bold guest in store. But before we jump in, don't forget y'all to check out our classes at bigselfschool.com forward slash classes, and you can see everything that's happening this month. On today's show, we are thrilled to bring you a very special and timely message from our guest, Brian Penny. After spending years in a cycle of addiction dealing with his acute anxiety, one day he had a breakthrough, and this led him to develop what he calls a program for life to deal with mental and emotional well-being. And the program, it includes a vast range of tools and strategies that focus on self-awareness, decision-making, and mindset change strategies, as well as tactics to help people to boost their energy, find their life purpose, recognize negative thought patterns, and successfully navigate the relationships in their lives. Implementing this program had an incredible impact on his life. He acquired a publishing deal to write his first book, which recently came out, called Bonus Time. He won several academic awards, including a fully funded PhD scholarship at Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. And from there, he secured lecturing positions at both Trinity College and University College of Dublin, where he now teaches the neuroscience of mindfulness and addiction. You all are in for a treat today. He is going to be bringing us all kinds of insights, the latest cutting edge stuff. Thanks for listening and let's get started. Brian Penny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chad. I'm really looking forward to this one. Brian, we are thrilled to have you here. Uh, I've, re- I've been reading some of your work, excited to get your book, uh, and really excited to jump into this conversation. And I think the, the message that you talk about and your story is really going to resonate with people. So uh, yeah, so thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm del- delighted to be here. It's um, it's really interesting. It's I'm getting a lot of um, I'm getting a lot of traction with the story re- recently, which is is kind of surprising. It's uh, it's even this week or two, I've got a lot of emails from people. It's just people in addiction really relate to it, but it's just it's the, the story is more about anxiety than anything else. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an interesting one, you know. Well, and that was my thought too, is that so many people in our audience are going to really resonate with the anxiety that you talk about. And even if addiction isn't the kind of the coping strategy, I think that message will resonate a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, and part of your story, Brian, is about how addiction nearly killed you. And then you say on a fateful day in October, you write, I received a gift and you write, call it what you will, a perspective shift an awakening or simply dumb luck. And you write, that's not important. What matters is that it completely changed the course of my life. But I have to say that, you know, a turning, that turning point moment really piqued my curiosity. And I'm wondering yeah. what were the conditions around that moment for you? Because I, I tend to believe that transformation is a long process, not something that happens in a single moment. But sometimes there there does need to be that moment of epiphany of, of no turning back. Can you tell us how this moment happened for you? 
Yeah, definitely, Chad. And uh, Chad, and and there was there was a couple of um for me. So I do talk about that one moment that 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 perspective shift that I had. But there was a precursor to to that moment, I suppose. And it was when it was it all started um, when I when I went through detox. So I went through my fourth detox, and I had um I I, I done a home detox. And basically, um, I had a grand mal convulsive seizure. So in, in, in essence, I basically drove my teeth through my tongue, having a seizure. Quick story, I was brought to the hospital and I had this realization where I was in the hospital and I, I was broken. I was mentally, emotionally and physically broken from years of addiction and from this seizure, from biting my tongue nearly in half. And I remember just looking at uh, this fire extinguisher on the wall of the hospital and I remember it didn't make sense to me. It was a red fire extinguisher. But to me that night, it wasn't the red fire extinguisher. I remember saying, it's, that's the color red and that's a fire extinguisher. And, and I couldn't put the concept together. And I remember thinking I was brain damaged. And I, I often talk about that we are the stories we tell ourselves and believe. My story was that I cannot cope with anxiety and I need drugs to survive. But I remember that night, I remember just saying to myself, I, I give up. I can't. I can't fight. I can't. I can't do this anymore. I, I give in. I and I, it was like a surrendering. But I think that was the moment that dro I dropped my story and it allowed me to write a new story. So that that was sort of the precursor. That was a couple of weeks before I had that shift in perspective. But then I had to finish my detox, and I I was I went to another detox facility to come off methadone, which is the the substitute for heroin, and. In the final weeks of weaning, weaning off the methadone, I was really—I—I'd I, only learned about meditation and spirituality and awareness and Eastern philosophy. I'd never even looked into these concepts before, and it was like this energy was coming into my life, and I was getting excited about life. I remember just this thought was in my mind. It was like, "Wow, you have a life again!" But on that first day, clean the eight—it was the eighth of October, two thousand and thirteen. When I had that epiphany, that awakening moment, that was like the moment that it all came together, and it was just like the world just came alive. That's really the only way I can describe it. It was like colors were more colorful. There was like this energy in in things that were once yeah. hollow. It was it was an incredible experience. Wow. So I. I want to ask you about this because we're going to move forward and talk about the, the program that you've created and how that transformed your life. But before we do, I'm really curious about this. So I'm a psychologist. I practiced therapy for a long time. I don't know if you're familiar with the work. Um, there's a physician in Vancouver, actually, Gaber Mate. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I know, he, <laughs> oh gosh, so he's a work around addiction yeah. um, and ADD and anxiety, and he talks a lot about um, having a more kind of compassionate response, and he really takes aim at this whole war on drugs. Um, and he his hypothesis is that you know, and he's worked with with addicts for people with addiction for I mean decades, and so he has seen this pattern of trauma and loss and disconnection in childhood that he thinks is really the root of addiction, not genetic predisposition. So if you're open and willing, um, I, I would love to get your thoughts on that as much as you'd like to share. And I'm especially curious if you had to really reconcile some old wounds before you could move forward with this kind of new thinking and new story that you created. 
Thanks for bringing this up, Shelley. This is this is huge for me. It's really huge for me. So in, in me in my, in my memoir, I basically open up the like I start with the story of uh, of that with the fire extinguisher as a prologue. But basically, the, there's a quote that I, I start the book with as great. You sur- congratulations, you survived the war. Now live with the trauma, mm-hmm. and it's it's really it's really powerful for me. So I, I I basically had I came into the world from my mother's womb basically with a condition known as intestinal malrotation. So in layman's terms, my guts were twisted and I was misdiagnosed several times. I lost half my birth weight and it was only when they had realization of what happened, I was given a 5% chance of living. So I was rushed to emergency surgery and many people are not aware of this. I only became aware of this when I wrote the book and I done research that it was only up until 90, only in 1985 did I realize that infants experienced pain like normal human beings and they gave them a general anesthetic for operations. So it was based on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s. So I basically went under the knife, a big operation without a general anesthetic. So, yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. 1985, there was was some woman found out her her child had heart surgery without a general anesthetic. I think you're given a muscle relaxant you wear to stop you squirming, but no general anesthetic. So uh, she had a big an outcry and the public, uh, the medical practice was like, oh my God, what were we doing? It was like this huge realization. So I, per- I, I had complications from the operation and I've done a degree in psychology. I'm doing a PhD in psychology and, uh, and my learning has been that from a classical conditioning perspective, I was programmed to view the world and associate the world. Like I made associations, the world is dangerous. I'm feeling pain in my body. And my trauma, when I talk about this, I'm still healing my trauma. Like I, I, I often find myself rubbing the scar on my, on my belly, even now, mm-hmm. 42 years later, um, from that trauma that I had. So I was never given a general anesthetic. I found one myself when I was 17 years of age, heroin, and I spent seven, the next 18 years using that anesthetic to, 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 mm-hmm. to heal me pain. And... It, it was only when writing my book that, and in about a year ago, um, like I do a bit of inner child work with myself, but and but I done it on uh, like my I very loving parents, but there, were, there was alcoholism in the family as well. So I remember my parents drink drive, and I had a lot of trauma of waiting at the window for them to come home because I thought they'd crash the car. But I never spoke about my infant self as a baby. I referred to myself as an organism. And when I was chatting to a clinical psychologist over here, she's an amazing person, um, Alison Keaton, her name is, and she says, you just called your, your, your infant self an organism. You're a baby. And it was like mm-hmm. the two of us had this realization. I was treated like an organism. So I refer to myself as an organism. So I still, even in the last war, year, have done work on that where I, I, I hold that little child, visualize that little child, hold him, tell him I'm, sh- I'm strong now. I have you now. So I'm st- to answer your question, Shelley, I, I'm still doing that work. And I think mm-hmm. it is so important when it comes to addiction. I think trauma is the core of, I don't know the statistics, but I would reckon over 90% of addictions. Yeah. 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 I think his work has been profound that way. And I think, you know, what I want our audience to hear too, is that, um, stress and trauma and anxiety can, it's, it's often the root of a lot of, of habits that we kind of fall into to cope and to anesthetize. Like that story you just told, oh my gosh, it almost makes me cry. It's so powerful to think about how many years later you discovered heroin that became your, um, your anesthetist. Anest. What's the right word? Anesthetist. Anesthetist. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, anesthesia. The drug. There. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To cope with those those um, 
and you know, there's old wounds. And so I think it's a, it's a powerful story yeah. there. And we'll, uh, remind our audience that, uh, the book is bonus time. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll say a little bit more about it and include that in the show notes. Um, the, the, well, so what you're saying, Brian is, is leading me to, um, you, you write about some stuff about like the inner critic and, and how we talk to ourselves, how we, um, you know, how, how can we improve our self-talk? I've been writing a little bit about self-compassion and I've been really struck by, um, like the reality of how we sometimes do talk to ourselves. You're saying that you were referring to yourself, um, almost as at, like an organism. What, what, what are you finding the latest re- research is, is saying about how we should talk to ourselves and, and for that matter, how we shouldn't. Yeah, it's a it's a huge one for me. Like self talk, it's 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 something that um, I, I'm probably going to base a career around this. I think it's that important for me because I believe we are the stories we tell ourselves and believe. And as I said, my story was I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. My new story today is adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. And when I when I have challenging situations, I find myself leaning in. How can I thrive here? So I'm acting towards my story. And I suppose what got me into psychology, like I wanted to know why I suffered, why my suffering uh, went away and how I can help other people. And I had this realization when my mind went quiet, it was like anxiety left me. So I was like, right, so what's the relationship between self-talk and emotions? So I I, I dug deep on a theory, like a lot of us know, uh, a lot of people might know acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's a, it's it's a it's a big therapeutic practice out there, but the foundations, okay. the scientific foundations of that therapy is called relational frame theory, and it's a really robust behavioral behavioral theory of uh, cognition, language, and cognition, which demonstrates that language is a vehicle for emotion. So emotions mm-hmm. can literally travel through language. So this was a this was a monster for me. So if 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 we tell ourselves stories like you're not good enough you're, you have that inner critic kind of voice and as you send the self-compassion like the tone of your voice it might be you're not good enough you're stupid like the tone of that you wouldn't talk to your friends or your family or anyone like that but you'll right. talk to yourself like that but so if language is a vehicle for emotion and we have sixty thousand thoughts a day is the estimate most 90 percent of them are supposedly repetitive i think they are repetitive that means these are the stories the inner critic the victim story like it's going to be having an impact on our emotions, which has an impact on our biology and it stresses the body and, and, and will, will, will fuel that anxiety. So I think that's where the science really lies around that. And it's really, it's really important to change that self-talk. I think the important part is, is to first become aware. Like if there's no awareness, you cannot change because you're not aware of it and you'll just be in them conditioned habitual patterns that you're not going to change. So I think awareness is key, whether it's mm-hmm. mindfulness, self-observation, reflective thinking, journaling, there's lots of ways of, of, of reflecting on that and becoming aware of the of these practices. So the awareness is key. But once you become aware of the stories you tell yourself and aware of that inner narrative, that 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 the thinker of who you are and you, you realize that, then I think it's important to try to change it. And I think it's it's observe the tone of your voice, observe how you talk to yourself, and then try to realize what's your primary narrative and what's the words you say like i love trying to reframe my language like if i ever find myself saying why me like you might get some people you go out and have your cars punctured you're in a rush you say why does this always happen to me like it probably happened three times ever in your entire life but you might be saying why me so it's say instead of saying yeah say reframe that what can i do about this so in a challenging event don't say why me 
what can I do about this? So change the mm. language and you change how you feel. That'd be, that'd be my big idea around that. Yeah. I, and I, I think, you know, and I tell clients and people that I talk with, like anxiety itself can be a signal. Like if you can get aware of like, oh gosh, this yeah. is what anxiety feels like in my body. I'm like, I can't breathe or it feels like an elephant's on my chest or my neck is really tensed up. Like that is information that then can lead you to a cue that I need to do some work around how I'm talking and treating myself. Yeah. And so, and so speaking of um, anxiety, so I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, coming through this cycle of addiction um, and a few years later, you ran into another anxiety, um, the fear of speaking before mm. audiences. And so here you have this great profound story. And now you're speaking more, telling them what you've learned. How did you address this anxiety? Um, like, yeah, how did you get to the point where you were overcoming it and, and able to do all the speaking that you're doing? Yeah, at, at the at the very start, I remember doing my first ever public talk, which wasn't the public talk. It was while I was in college and there was four people in the room. And I remember having a near panic attack. I didn't have a panic mm. attack. And it wasn't like the old anxiety. It had a different quality to it. But I really, str- yeah, I really struggled. I lost my words, sweaty palms. I was uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. And but But anxiety was no longer my master. So there was a different quality to it. And then I'd done a talk in a school and it was a li- I got anxious, but it was a little bit better. And it, I've, I've been implementing a practice. It's a mindfulness practice known as self-observation. So it's mindful self-observation. So I basically mindfully observe my thoughts, feelings and bodily sensations. So I've been doing that for a long time. And I got this from the work of Eckhart Tolle, Anthony DeMello, and like it's mm-hmm. self-observation to create that detachment from self. Because I mm-hmm. often think like when I was an addict, I looked like an addict, I thought like an addict, and I felt like an addict. But when I look in the mirror today, the same Brian is looking in the mirror, but I don't think like an addict, I don't feel like an addict, and I don't look like an addict. So that that true authentic, that true self is there. So it was the construction, the constructed self is who mm-hmm. we think we are. So now, with true mindful self-observation, what I found was that I created a detachment from anxiety. I wasn't my anxiety anymore. It was something that I experienced and passed. So I was very lucky when I done my first big public talk. It was in a big auditorium. And I remember just getting panicked. says, oh, my God. It was like, I, I think I, I gave myself a new story because I was going to be talking about mindfulness. And I, I got this a little story in my head. Oh, Mr. Mindfulness is going to have a panic attack on stage. How stupid will I look? And this, <laughs> yeah, this is what was feeding me anxiety. And I remember just being sort of on the stage and thinking, oh, my God. It was like everyone's eyes were like lasers on me. And I could feel the, the sensations, the sweaty palms. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. And I remember so it was like I just I felt like I came out of my body for a moment and it was like another voice kicked in, like a not a voice, like an analytical voice, like just a controlled voice. It's like, right, you're okay. Tell them what happened. Yeah, I'd no water. I left my water behind and my mouth had gone really dry. Ask Michelle to get you the water, get you some water, tell them what's going on, everything will be okay. It's not the end of the world. And I actually told, I actually told the other term, says, I was just about to have a panic attack there because I could feel the anxiety within my body. But through the practice of self-observation, I was able to take a step back. I was able to observe how I felt and respond in a more rational manner. It still felt uncomfortable, but I was able to respond. Now, 
that talk was by no means slick. I've, I've done much better talks since and I, I, I've carved out a much better way of telling me story and talking about the tools and tactics. It was very, uh, it was very uh, raw at the time. But that, was, I think, was one of my most powerful talks because people had come back to Michelle, who was my supervisor in college, and he says, I think they seen the, seen the realness of the situation mm-hmm. and they would have felt my anxiety and how I pulled myself out of that. And for me, it, it was that tool that really helped me. Yeah. So if we were to, um, let's do this thought exercise, because I'm just aware of, you know, everybody, not just our audience and people listening to the podcast, but we're all in this kind of swimming in the soup of anxiety of COVID-19. Um, I think on top of that, people have additional pressures, whether it's financial and, uh, vocational parenting, like there's so much, anxiety that people are experiencing right now. So if we were to take some of your, your ideas and your steps, like what would you advise? Like how, like talk through how you kind of are thinking and talking to yourself because COVID-19 is something none of us asked for. We can't control it. Uh, it's not like, um, you know, it's one of those kind of anxieties that don't really have a fix. And so I'm curious how you could apply the work that you've done around anxiety and self-talk uh, and what you would what you would advise people. Yeah, there's, there's lots of things I would advise. And I think a lot of this is kind of, is the, is the work, like there's, no, there's obviously no magic wand where you can just implement the practice and all of a sudden you'll catch yourself talking, you'll be able to change it. So I do think a lot of this work is preemptive work. I would have a very structured morning routine and it doesn't specifically base around self-talk, but there is elements of that. And I have an acronym for my morning routine. It's called MAVIC, M-A-V-I-G. And it only takes me from 10 to 16 minutes, depending on that routine. And Ooh, the, tell us. Yeah. The, so the M of that could be, it could be is, is mindfulness. It's, it's a mindfulness practice. And it could be like, depending on the amount of time I had, it could be a three-minute mindfulness exercise. It could be an eight-minute mindfulness exercise. So that's the M. And I'd use a guided meditation on inside timer or else I just take a couple of deep breaths for three four minutes or sometimes I actually if I'm really stuck for time I'll mindfully brush my teeth for three minutes I like it's like I like the idea of James Clear's idea of, of stacking habits so stacking new yeah. habit on an existing habit so it's like a micro meditation so if I'm really stuck for time that will be the M of me Mavic the A is affirmations and I simply say to myself like language can be a vehicle for emotion so I simply say to myself I am positive happy energetic and carefree I am positive mm-hmm. happy energetic and carefree and I'll try to feel that really strongly and I'll do that for about 15 times I'll just say that uh, and the power of language I can really feel more carefree and energetic as I say that I think the more you do it the stronger it gets the V is visualization and I'm not really trying to manifest winning the lottery or anything like that. For me, it's about priming myself for the day ahead to take action. So I would basically, if I'm doing a podcast or I'm doing a big talk, I visualize myself being emotive. I visualize myself being strong and healthy. I want to write my second book over in the in, in the Alps in Austria. So I'd visualize myself smelling mm. the pine leaves over in the Alps, writing my second book. Oh, and, that sounds so good right now. Doesn't it? Doesn't <laughs> it? It sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's really it's really priming me for the day ahead. So I'll take them bold actions that will get me for the day ahead. And, and, and much of this is variable as well. Like, so you're, t- you're thinking these things, you're, you're visualizing these things. The, the I in Mavic is inner child work, which I talked about. And then the G is for gratitude. And I will just, I'll go deep on one particular thing. I like to pick me nephew who has the most beautiful smile. And I'll say, I'm grateful to be in Aaron's life. Cause if I was still in addiction, I wouldn't be in his life. He's only three. I wouldn't be allowed in his life. 
I'm grateful for the joy that Aaron Smile brings to my parents and my sister. And I'll go deep on that one thing. And a powerful part of that is if you look at the neuroscience of visualization, you'll see that even when you're visualizing beautiful things, that many of them neurons fire and you still get that dopamine release in your system. And then the variable world that goes with, goes with that as well, like the variable relations that go with that as well, you'll feel good, you'll change your story, life is good. So I really just prime myself for the day. And I really like I'm priming myself to be grateful, to be take bold actions, to be to 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 be carefree, to be energetic, to be focused, to be more concentrated, and to be more aware, to be more aware of the stories that I'm telling myself throughout the day. So I think one of the most powerful practices people can implement in their lives would be a morning routine. And like you could do a three-minute morning routine, affirmations, visualization, and gratitude, a minute each. Prime mm. yourself for the day ahead and try to be more aware of them stories. And that'd be something small, but do it consistent. I think consistency is the key. Wow. I mean, those That's are good. some powerful, like specific, very practical, I, I think, takeaways. It's not like go, you know, meditate for some huge amount of time or, and it's not vague. The, those are some really helpful takeaways. I think I'm going to, um, I'm going to kind of apply some of those, not kind of, I literally am, uh, because I, I definitely, I mean, I got anxiety. I fight the anxiety thing. I, I can totally identify too with, um, you know, I, I remember before getting on a, a, I've talked about this before, but just, uh, you know, before getting on a radio show when it was live, it was a new experience and it was something I was so excited about doing. And yet I would get nervous about sounding nervous and it was really hard to, yeah. uh, to overcome. Um, well, here, here's, here's a thought, um, Brian, you know, we hear that lately it's kind of become popularized this idea that the obstacle is the way and mm. it sounds good and it feels good. And I, I get it. And I've read Ryan Holiday's the obstacle is the way, and I found it very, um, helpful and inspiring. Um, but you know, but what is it though about obstacles that make them the way? Cause aren't obstacles obstacles, you know what I mean? So how does it work sort of paradoxically that they are the very way and, forward? And can I ask, add to that? Oh. I'd be, I'm really interested in how your addiction, your experience with addiction, which obviously was a large obstacle for your life, yeah. how that became the way, like what that process was. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what primary, like I would be big into, I came across that line and um, the op obstacles don't block the path. They are the path. Bef before I read Ryan Holiday's book, I love Ryan Holiday's book as well. And it, it's really, it's, it's really like even, I think Ray Dalio says it as well, pain plus reflection equals growth. And it's like, mm. To grow, you need to be, you need, it has to be uncomfortable. It's an unfortunate thing in life. And for me, Shelly, I suppose, for, for me, I often say like my addiction has become one of the greatest assets in my life uh, because it's given me this sense of awareness. It, it made me look at life from through a different lens, to look at life skills, to look at uh, meditation, Eastern philosophy. And I believe I'm a million times happier than I ever could have been, even if I didn't get into addiction. Even if I didn't struggle with anxiety and trauma, I think I might, might, I could be wrong, but I think I might have been predisposed to egotistical, materialistic lifestyle of unawareness, that sort of typical lifestyle. Mm. I, I, I think I, I'm naturally, I was naturally self-obsessed or something like that. That's something I'd have in my own head. My mom says that about me as a kid. I was a little bit like that. But um, mm. I think that it's given me a sense of awareness to, 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 to look at the world through a different lens. And, and one of those lenses is, is to look at obstacles as, as a way forward. And there's another book that I like, it's called uh, by Nassim Taleb, it's called Anti-Fragile. 
And he talks about, yeah, he talks about systems being anti-fragile. So instead of being fragile, like fragile things break, resilient things don't crumble under pressure, but they're still taking hits. But if you're anti-fragile, you grow in the face of adversity. So it's like that new story I tell myself, adversity doesn't stop me, it fuels my ability to thrive. So when I look at like, when negative things come into my life, I look at them as opportunities to grow. So if somebody's being like ignorant or being mean to you in some way, like you could practice your perspective taking skills. Like maybe they're going through their own struggles and practice your perspective taking skills because it, it's very hard not to be empathetic when you're standing in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. you could practice tolerance compassion if you fail on something you could use it as an opportunity to learn if you if you get stuck on a problem use it as an opportunity to get creative like there's so many obstacles that we face in life and we can use them as opportunities to 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 take a positive slant on it like even a, a very small obstacle um it might be queuing up it being in queues i remember thinking like the cheek in me uh to think i'm too busy to be standing in queues so i said i don't stand in queues anymore i meditate in queues so mm-hmm. it's really just reframing things and flipping them on their head so that's that's the lens that i would look through that as and i i, I suppose i try to be anti-fragile and grow in the face of adversity Love that. I do too. Anti-fragile. I'm going to have to. Yeah, check that out. Yeah, check that out. So Brian, you say, um, here's a quote. I I believe you said this. Tell me if you didn't. (laughs) Connection, compassion, patience, and inner peace feel more important than ever. Having fun is still high on the list. It's critical for our well-being. But many of my core values, including ambition, boldness, and even balance, have fallen from their lofty pedestal. So, um, these values are still important to you. It just, it sounds like their direction has shifted a little bit. So I'm, I'm interested in uh, why you kind of reassess those values and re- maybe reprioritize boldness and ambition in your life. Uh, and also, you know, we're talking about boldness this month, a big self school. So what, what value does boldness still have for you and ambition and like, really going after those those big dreams and goals that you have for yourself yeah i love that idea i can't remember where i said it i thought it could have been a blog or a podcast i'm not too sure but i definitely did say that um it, it was yeah you really, wrote that actually pretty recently i got that yeah. from one of your articles it was yeah. It? yeah 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 i did i definitely did and for me so i i have a decision making framework for me life that's actually it was life-changing for me and it comes from this idea from the great britain round team in the 2000 olympics and they asked themselves will it make the boat go faster so for every decision mm-hmm. that they had to make they asked themselves says will it make our boat go faster if it did they said yes if it didn't they said no so I, I love the simplicity of this idea and clarity is a huge value of mine I says that will give me clarity over my decisions so I developed a metaphorical boat for myself that was my purpose values and goals so my goals before like this this came about the change in values through COVID-19 so pre-COVID-19 my goals were my PhD my book and my speaking career my values were industry, boldness, accountability, uh, stillness, compassion. I had a couple of, a couple of core values. And my purpose was um, showing people that change is possible. But what I noticed when COVID-19 kicked in, my goals changed. My number one goal was self-care for me and my loved ones. My second goal was reaching out, doing my speaking gigs online to help other people with the tools and tactics that I had. So they were my two core goals. But that's when I realized that my values shifted as well. All of a sudden, being bold and reaching out to CEOs to, 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 um, like I sort of in 2017, I reached, I sent cold emails to the leading CEOs and t- leading figures, I suppose, in Ireland. 
and I got a tremendous feedback from them uh, that, that you call, them cold emails and it launched the speaking career that I have today. So I was bold and I, 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 I'm very bold in the actions of asking for things and of put, taking a risk, taking a chance. So that's where boldness was really, really important for me. But all of a sudden in the midst of COVID-19, I found that boldness wasn't serving me as much. It being industrious and focusing on my work wasn't serving me as much. There's still important values, but when everyone was struggling, they weren't as important. So what I found was that an ability to be patient, to be flexible, connection, compassion, these values were elevated. So it was like really the rudder of my boat really just changed direction for a couple of months. But but what I found is now I think flexibility is is a is a huge core value of mine, and it, and it was already. It just helped me to bring it into awareness of how important it was in my life. Like I still love being bold. I still love being industrious. But it, it, it just gave me it gave me a sense of being flexible. And it's given me this other idea with this metaphor that every now and then I might have to change direction of the rudder of me bow. I have a lot of values. It can't be aligned with our values all the time, but it allows me to align with the right values at the right time to make the right decisions. So, because one of the things that comes up in conversations a lot with our community is this clarity that you talked about. Yeah. So this idea that, okay, I'm, I want to be bold. I want to go after what I want to, you know, however I want to impact the world and do this big work, but I don't know what it is. I don't know. Yeah. And so like, how, how did you get that, that deeper sense of clarity? Um, and, and given the restraints of COVID-19, how did you stay clear, even given this kind of place that we're all in right now? And maybe, you know, you talked a lot about self-observation, so maybe that has a a role in this clarity, but I, I do think people struggle with that. They want to be bold, but they don't even know where to start and how, and, and, and which way to put my boat. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that really comes down to passion and purpose, doesn't it? Like what's your purpose? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's your why? I think that's the great thing. Like I love, I love Simon Sinek's uh, book. I think find your why or ask oh, me. Yeah. yeah, it's a great book. And there, for me, like it's a couple of questions that I'd ask my clients, especially. Um, I would say like, what gives you fire in your belly? Like when I'm talking about life skills, when I'm talking about talking about these tactics and tools for life and self-observation and doing podcasts like this, like I come alive, I can feel that fire in my belly. I love this stuff. So I often ask people is what gives you that fire in your belly? And, and people struggle with that. Like it's a hard, it's a hard question. So another, another way to ask is what, 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 what lit you up when you were a kid? What did you do mm-hmm. as a, as a young person? Like sometimes we're programmed by the, the world to, to stop being playful, to stop, chasing the things that that kids want but maybe maybe you're supposed to be an artist maybe you're supposed to um work in a forest like but these things now you have to go for a job as an accountant you have to do something sensible but i think i think kids are sort of programmed into going down the safe route and we we lose touch with the things that gave us the fire in our belly and i think once you have that fire in your belly and you have that clarity around what lights you up inside then you can be bold about that. It, it was really funny when I, when I was uh, got clean. My family wanted me to go back to a normal job, whatever the normal job was. But I just knew, no, I need to go to college. My heart was screaming, my gut was screaming loud and clear. Follow your passion, mm-hmm. and it was only by there's a great line by Paolo Coelho. It's like it's uh, I'm gonna butcher the line now, but it's, <laughs> don't, don't give in to your fears because only then can you talk to your heart. And like, I was afraid of taking that risk. It was even when I went to college, I got a big scholarship to do my PhD. 
But um, it was it was like for uh, for seventy six thousand euros, like it was a big scholarship. But they wanted me to do to do a coding scholarship. I was going to be sitting in the room for two years, and I remember thinking this does not make my boat go faster. Mm. And I rejected the scholarship on the basis of that. I remember describing it to me professor, telling him about my metaphorical boat. He thought I had ten heads. But what, <laughs> what 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 came of that was like I was willing to follow my passion because I couldn't do something that didn't light that fire in my belly. But he actually said to me, look, you do a PhD that serves you well. So I ended up doing a, P- a mindfulness PhD in the Rutland Centre, which is like the Betty Ford Clinic of Ireland. And we've done a, a beautiful study for my PhD, something that inspired me, something that lit that fire in my belly. And I was bold about taking them actions. And I got the scholarship on the basis of that anyway. But I think it's that clarity and it's around following your values. I think I think defining your values is really important as well. And a lot of people have struggled, struggled with that as well. So a good way of trying to figure out what your values are is like ask yourself if you if you went to your own funeral, what would you want your friends and your family to say about you? He was he was loyal, he was kind, he was bold, he was ambitious. What would they what would you like them to say about you? And that might give you a sense of shift in perspective to see what your values are. Or another way is to invert that, like what frustrates you, what makes you angry? Because the opposite of that might be something that you value. So getting to know your values, I think, is really important as well. I would want them to say okay. he could maintain a spreadsheet really well. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be saying that at your funeral. <laughs> that not true. That's actually true. It's not true. Um, I think boldness comes like, yes. And we talked about this on another podcast, like boldness. It almost is like clarity doesn't necessarily become come from boldness, but I think sometimes we just have to act like yeah. then the clarity yeah. comes, you yeah. know, it's like, just get, just start experimenting, just start, um, you know, ruminating isn't enough. Sometimes we have to get out there and we have to start like acting and being bold and doing things and facing fears and putting ourselves in situations where we, we do have to confront those things. But what I love about what Brian is saying too, is like, he's the, our beginning point. A lot of times when we're trying to help people get clarity uh, on what they want to do is to begin with kind of a, a value alignment. Yeah, we do. We talk about that a yeah. lot. Core values. You know, what are the three values that you hold that if you no longer have them, you would not resemble yourself. Uh, and that does get people thinking. I love your questions that you've, that you've posed too. Those are good. Yeah. I love that question. Uh, can you say that again, Shelly? I love that. That last thing you said. Yeah. So, uh, talking about, I always have people come up with like two or three cause people want to come up with yeah. like my 10 core values. I'm like, yeah, no, no, those aren't core values, but the values that you hold so dear that if you no longer had them, you would not resemble yourself. Oh, I love that. So I love that line. Yeah. Who you <laughs> yeah. are, you know? Yeah. I'll be, yeah. I'll be robbing that. <laughs> I'll give I'll, I'll, I'll let them know it came from you. Don't hey, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that true self. You know, uh, Brian, we are so appreciative of your time. Thanks for making some, but yeah, we also, great. we want to celebrate you. We want people to be able to uh, find you. So we know it's at brianpenny.com. You've it got a, your memoir bonus time uh, has been released. Where can they grab a copy? Tell, tell them how to get in touch with you. Yeah, so basically everything is on the website. So the, the book is on Amazon, it's on Book Depository, on all the major platforms. But if you go to the website, um, I have a section on the book there, me, me online courses there as well. It's Master Your Self Talk, me blogs, every, everything I talk about, I write about and I, and I speak about as well. So me blogs, me videos, 
it's everything we talk about here. It's all different tools and tactics, but you get everything basically on that website. Great. And we'll, awesome. we'll link all of that in the show notes yeah, so amazing. people can easily find you. Yeah. This has been just pure joy talking to you. Same. I've had an absolute blast. Like I'm energized. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for more now. I, I, I didn't <laughs> right. yeah. so, um, Please don't be a stranger. Uh, we're going to follow you and your work uh, and hopefully, you know, get to do something fun again together soon. Epic. I love that, guys. Thanks a lot. I think there's great alignment here as well. I think we, we speak the same language. Really love that. Don't be strange. I love that. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks yeah. a lot. For real. Yeah. We'll Thanks, talk to Brian. you soon. Thanks, guys. Talk okay. to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. At the Big Self School, we know you want to connect with the world in a way that's meaningful and get rid of that feeling that life is just passing you by without you having anything to show for it. To do that, you need a community that supports you as you rediscover your purpose and resources to help you along the way. So we are creating books, we're building workshops, we have group coaching to help you rediscover your big self that we call inner circles and a healthy and whole community at Big Self School. So check out our two-hour virtual classes on how to build resiliency, how to discover what you really want, how to like yourself more, and how to find calm. I need that one. And many more at BigSelfSchool.com forward slash classes. We will see you on our next episode.